Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Diversity and inclusion, those can refer to people who are wired differently from most people. A handful of federal agencies have started so-called neurodiversity initiatives, focusing on hiring people with autism and other neurodivergent conditions. But government-wide neurodiversity efforts have been slow to gain traction. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Jen King has worked for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency since the year 2000. She joined NGA out of college and immediately excelled as an analyst, but found herself struggling with the social aspects of an office job. King had no reason to suspect there was any particular reason for that until a member of her church handed her a book called As for Girls by Rudy Simone. It describes the experiences of women and girls with autism spectrum disorder. The book sat at the bottom of King's desk for six months. And I read through it in one night and cried because it was me. It was my life. King has continued to excel at the agency after being diagnosed as autistic midway through her career. I had amazing supervisors at that time that were really supportive. And they were like, you know, hey, okay, you know, let's go and get diagnosed. I'm really excited to learn about all this. Let's continue on this journey because we'd love to have 10 to 15 more of you. I went and sought diagnosis and... For me, myself, it's been a huge learning experience. That was more than a decade ago. Now, in addition to her role as a senior analyst, King leads NGA's neurodiversity program. It began in 2020 as a pilot program to recruit people with autism. After a successful start, NGA plans to hire a new cohort of neurodivergent individuals this year. Neurodiversity is an umbrella term that refers to diversity of cognitive functions. It covers things like autism, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, and dyslexia. People with those conditions face high rates of unemployment, even though many are capable workers. And a new report by the MITRE Corporation says neurodivergent individuals often have skills, like pattern recognition, that would make them particularly good candidates for work in places like the intelligence community. While many private sector companies have launched neurodiversity initiatives in recent years, NGA's program is one of the few inside the federal government. Teresa Thomas is program lead for Neurodiverse Talent Enablement at MITRE, which partnered with NGA on its pilot program. I think it's just slow. I think folks are very cautious. I think they're waiting to see how it all shakes out with the agencies that are doing it. And some agencies are doing things, they're just not talking about them. And as you can imagine, those are the agencies that just don't talk about the things they do. Depending on their condition, neurodivergent people may face challenges in finding a job. Networking can be difficult for some, and many recruiters balk at gaps in a resume. Some people also have difficulty maintaining eye contact or talking at length during a job interview. Within the federal government, there are additional barriers. The Defense Department's policy excludes autistic candidates from military service without exception. And many government positions require a security clearance that comes with a lengthy background investigation and potentially a polygraph interview. NGA's pilot provided specific training for autistic candidates going through the clearance process. Here's Thomas again. We had an idea that it was probably very difficult for someone specifically on the autism spectrum to get through all of that, especially a TSSCI with a polygraph kind of clearance. And uh, yes, it was even more complicated than I thought. The initiative also provided training for some of NGA's polygraph specialists on potential behavioral differences for people with autism. It made a huge difference. That was one of the takeaways that 
it's not impossible. It just takes some real thought for folks to get get through. King's experience at NGA shows neurodiversity programs aren't just about hiring new people. An estimated 15 to 20 percent of the world's population is neurodivergent, but many people don't know that they have autism, ADHD, or another condition. And others may be hesitant to reveal that in the workplace. Anthony Pasilio is vice president of Neurodiverse Solutions at CAI. I do see still that there is some resistance to having neurodiversity at work programs just across the board, right? That, you know, people think that there's a risk associated with it, all the while knowing that there are neurodivergent individuals who are already working within that space. Pasilio says disclosing a neurodivergent condition can be a particularly difficult decision for an employee who may wonder whether it will impact their ability to move up the ranks. We're trying to put people in long-term long-lasting, meaningful, and rewarding careers. I think being able to disclose at work and understand that somebody's behind you and supports you, I think that goes a long way in making somebody feel that they are part of the organization, but more importantly, making them feel like they're a human being because potentially along the way, it's been very, very difficult for them. At NGA, King now leads a neurodiversity working group that helps raise awareness and drive inclusion efforts at the agency. Being able to be given the opportunity to speak about it allowed others to come out, if you will, and say that, hey, I'm neurodivergent and it's okay. And wow, the organization is doing great things to be extremely inclusive. I don't feel like I have to hide. And despite the slow start government-wide, Thomas is optimistic about the progress on neurodiversity being made across federal agencies. We are way past the what is neurodiversity stage, which is where we were when I first started this whole conversation. We're into the what does this look like where we are right now phase. In a public organization, that would be months, but this is the federal government, so this is years. But it's cautious, and I think people are starting to be really intentional. In October, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency launched its own neurodiverse federal workforce initiative. CISA says it will be a 15-month effort. Several interns will be placed on select cybersecurity teams with training for all participants, including the interns, team supervisors, managers, and any team leads. Congress is also pushing the Pentagon to take a closer look at the neurodiversity issue. The 2024 National Defense Authorization Act requires DOD to brief lawmakers on neurodiversity within the armed forces. The briefing will include current barriers to hiring and retaining neurodivergent individuals within DOD, both in military and civilian service. Going forward, King says small changes in a workplace, like offering an agenda 24 hours in advance of a meeting, can make a big difference for some people. And King sees a lot of those small changes starting to add up at places like NGA. We are seeing quite a bit of existing neurodivergent population come out and say that, you know, hey, I'm neurodivergent, I need a little bit of support here, or hey, here's where I think that we could help. I think that as time moves on and we hire more neurodivergent individuals, there is going to be quite a shift and a change in the federal workforce. I think we're going to see that pouring out more and more. There may be, you know, somebody that's in the room that's been afraid to speak up that will now speak up because now they feel included. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to again unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources. Is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So, for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their in their roles. Excellent new thinking.、Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time? When, as a leader, that you've made a mistake, and what is that? And、um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so、uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration, and I was a supervisor, and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years, and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing、uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about twenty people in the room, and I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote," which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, "Go ahead, and I want to hear from you." And I realized, in hindsight. I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted. That she let all these people. Have opinions when they didn't know. In my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so,、um, in reflection on that, I realize. And now, as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake. That it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so. That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.